Dwayne. I appreciate that. Um, <clears throat> before we jump into this, I... Oh, thank you. I just want to uh, point out that um, these services continue. You can hear what I'm saying and see what I'm what I prepared for the PowerPoint because of our two servants at the back there, Clara and Thomas, this morning. And uh, I got a word for you guys, and I just want to share it with you. Uh, Clara, your name means bright and famous. And uh, as, as I was just standing here, the Lord said to me, that he has put a good foundation in your life. There's something that's rock solid about you and your commitment to the Lord Jesus. But he's going to take you on to live your name. He's going to make you shine. You're going to be like a beacon in a dark night. You're going to be like a lighthouse bright and shining across a sea which will be a sign to many. Believe the Lord's given you a strength of character that you're unafraid to stand out when others want to fit in. You have a strength of will that can resist the pull of the world. And that's how God's made you, because that's what God has for you in the future. He has made you not to fit in, not to be concerned to fit in, but to stand out. So go as far as you can go. Go to university, get your qualifications, be the best that you can be, because you're going to be a beacon a fire, like a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Never allow anybody to put a cover over the brightness of your light, but let it shine because you've not been named haphazardly. There's destiny in the meaning of your name. Thomas, hiding behind the computer screen there, Thomas saved my bacon this morning. I missed bringing something with me, but he, he searched and got it, and uh, I'm very grateful for that. Thomas, um, you have a namesake in the Bible, and you are like your namesake in that you too are a follower of Jesus. He's called you. He's called you. He desires a relationship with you. But unlike your namesake, who had doubt, you have faith. And God is putting strength into that faith foundation. So allow his process to work in your life. Get close to him in your devotions. Learn to meet him in the word. Learn to call out to him in prayer and learn to step out 
in faith. Because God is giving you faith. In faith, share your testimony. In faith, share with others about Jesus. Even in faith, offer to pray for people who are ill. Because God loves it when we step out in risky faith and his promise to us and his promise to you is he will never leave you or forsake you. And that word means he will never drop you. But as you step out in faith, God will step up to honor you. So you are like Thomas in the New Testament, but you're also like David in the Old Testament. He was with the sheep when the action was happening. And you are behind the computer screen and serving. And that's a great thing. Continue to serve. Continue to look for other opportunities to serve. Because in your servanthood will be your rulership. And I believe the Lord's called you to rulership he's 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 called you to kingship in a way I, I don't mean a literal king with a crown on his head but I I do mean a place of authority in his work and your primary qualification for that is to be a servant and that's what you're learning to do right now keep saying yes to everything God puts before you and I believe that you're going to see faith grow and rulership emerge as both of these things are rooted in the servant heart that God's given you. Carlos, I had a word for you too. And I know Carlos and I banter back and forth, but this is a serious word. You're building a house. And I believe the Lord would say to you, Carlos, that uh, you aren't just building a house for your family. You're preparing a place for people to come. That uh, there, there, there are people where you live in whose hearts God is working. They are white unto harvest fields. And I believe that God's put you there and, and you're in the process of not just building a house but preparing a place where people can meet Jesus. There were some wonderful things that happened in houses in the New Testament. The early church met from house to house. Jesus taught in houses. Peter's mother-in-law, the crippled man, was healed in a house. The disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit in a house. There was a dynamic prayer meeting that shook the very house where they were meeting. And, and I believe the Lord just gave me a word this morning that you are preparing a place for a future work of God. So have one eye on your house, but the other eye on who to invite. And, and I, I believe that, 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 that you can plant a work uh, in where you are uh, that, uh, that's in God's heart. And just as he is preparing people, you are preparing the place. Okay. Well, there we are. 
That was off script. <laughs> um, let's come back on script, shall we? Um, we are talking about water baptism. And uh, whenever anybody mentions to me water baptism, my mind goes back to an hilarious evening uh, a number of pastors uh, in Winnipeg had with Willard Teeson. Some of you know Willard Teeson and It's a New Day. And, uh, and Willard is, was just full of wonderful, amusing stories about baptism. And I want to tell you one. Um, he told us that there was once a trip to Israel. And on this trip to Israel, there was a lady. Now, this lady was a little bit awkward. She had a morose personality. Um, she kept herself to herself. And people couldn't really get alongside her easily. However, she had a great desire to be baptized in the River Jordan like Jesus was. And so when they got to that particular part of the um, tour, um, they decided that this, this tour decided to uh, baptize her. And the leader, who was a pastor, uh, led her out into the River Jordan and uh, put his arm around her and held her secure. He pronounced the baptismal formula. And on his amen, he plunged her under the waters of the sacred River Jordan. Now, what happened next happened in nanoseconds, but it's going to take me a little longer to explain to you what happened. Because no sooner was she under the water than he noticed something rise to the surface. And it was something uh, long and black and, and a bit bushy. And he realized that this lady had been wearing a wig that had worked itself loose, and as he'd put her under the water, it had come off her head altogether and was floating on the surface, heading towards the Dead Sea. <laughs> and so not wanting to embarrass this poor lady, all at once he, he pulled her up and at the same time picked up this wig and just slapped it on her head. But in his haste, he put it on backwards. <laughs> and so she was presented to the quite sizable crowd who'd gathered at the river bank with long black strands down the front of her head and a neat fringe <laughs> down the back of her head. <laughs> now, despite the humor of that story, baptism is actually uh, quite a serious Event. In fact, it's an important and I would say vital step for Christians to take as they follow Jesus. And if you have not been baptized, I would invite you to put your name forward and at the, whenever this baptismal service is planned, take part in it. The title of my message today is The Blessings of Baptism. And I want to gather our thoughts around three headings. First of all, I, I'm not basing this on any one text, but there are many texts that we will look at in the course of the message. First of all, baptism is a command that we keep. Baptism is a command that we keep. Whenever we read about water baptism in the New Testament, it's always an imperative. 
It's never a suggestion, an option, or a choice. Baptism is always a command. Acts 2 records Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost after they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And he preaches a powerful message. The people who, he's li- who are listening to him says, well, what must we do then? And this is what Peter says. Acts 2 verse 38. He said, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He gave them two commands and a promise. Repent, be baptized, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For our purposes, just notice there that baptism is a command. Some chapters later, in Acts chapter 10, Peter finds himself in the presence of Cornelius and a whole company of people who Cornelius had gathered together. Now these were Romans, but they'd been attracted to the Jewish religion. They were called God-fearers. And so Peter starts to preach to them, but, but he's, he's uncertain whether it's kosher to have just God-fearers, not full Jews, respond to the Christian gospel. Well, God makes his mind up for him. Because God fills the whole company with the Holy Spirit. So they obviously surrendered to the Lord in their heart. God sealed it by baptizing them in the Holy Spirit. But the important thing for us is in verse 47, Peter doesn't let them off with baptism. But rather, we read, and he ordered them to be baptized in the name of God of Jesus Christ. Baptism is a command. In fact, it's so closely related to repentance that in Mark chapter 16 and verse 16, Jesus says, he who has believed and is baptized shall be saved. Now, I'm not I don't think that means you have to be baptized to be saved. But what it does mean is that believing and being baptized happen very close on one another. And in fact, the New Testament knows nothing of this great distance between coming to Christ and being baptized. We sometimes leave it weeks or months or years or maybe even decades but back then the two happened very close together they was administered quickly so for example in acts 2 verse 41 we read that the people in jerusalem were baptized on the same day that they were saved And then in Acts 16, verse 33, the Philippian jailer and his family were baptized, it says, in the same hour that they were saved. So there was none of this stretching things out. Back in Bible days, you were saved and then you were quickly baptized. Now, why do you think baptism is an imperative, a command? Well, I think it's a command for this reason. Because when we submit to a command, 
we are being obedient. And when we are obedient to God, we are mixing strength into our spiritual foundation. So that means that when we see baptism and when we submit to baptism, when we obey the command of God, what we are actually doing is mixing strength into our Christian foundation. I can't tell you the number of times over the years I've done a message like this. There have been people in the congregation who are new Christians, but for whatever reason have balked at baptism. They, they've, they've seen it, they know they should do it, but they decide against it. Sometimes they don't want to give their testimony in public. Sometimes it's a bit humiliating to come out all wet. I guarantee every time that's happened, those people have gone on to falter in their faith. Because what they've done, instead of mixing obedience and so strength into their foundation, they've mixed disobedience and so weakness into their foundation. And so I would urge us this morning, if you've not been baptized, obey the command Mix strengthening to your foundation and move forward. Okay, so the first thing is baptism is a command. Second truth, baptism is an example we follow. It's a command we keep. It's an example we follow. Whenever we read of people being saved, we also read of them being baptized. In fact, Salvation is really an internal thing and it's a private thing. But baptism is the way we make our private decision public. Acts provides us with example after example after example of people who were saved and then baptized. And it's irrespective of their ethnicity and it's irrespective of the geographical location in which they lived. So why don't we just go through a whistle-stop tour of the book of Acts and demonstrate how this sort of action of baptism, this act of baptism, is something that they did then as commonplace, and so we are following their example now. So it was true as we've already said, for the Jews in Jerusalem after the day of Pentecost. Verse 41 of Acts 2 says, So those who received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. So the men of Jerusalem and the women of Jerusalem too, who responded on the day of Pentecost, that same day, it says, they were baptized. Baptism was the norm as well for the cousins of the Jews, the Samaritans, those people who had mixed race. They were partly Jews and they were partly Gentiles. Philip ministered to them in Acts chapter 8. There was a great revival. In fact, it says that he brought joy to their city by the evangelistic campaign that they 
enjoyed together. And verse 12 of Acts 8 says this, when they believed, they were being baptized, men and women alike. I like that, they were being baptized. There seems to be no end to baptism. That, that whenever they gave an altar call, people came forward, they were baptized. It's part of an example that we follow. The same pattern is seen for converts to Judaism. People who are from a Gentile background but had accepted the Jewish religion. They were called proselytes. And the, the, probably the best example of a proselyte was the Ethiopian in Acts chapter 8. He'd come all the way from Africa to Jerusalem to keep the the, the, the feast. And on his way home, Philip is there, thumbing a lift in the desert, and the Ethiopian stops his chariot and gives him a ride. Now, this guy is reading a scroll. So he's a very wealthy man to actually own that scroll. And back then, they never read just in their mind they always read out loud so he's reading Isaiah 53 I mean talk about a divine appointment and so he says to Philip who is he talking about there himself or somebody else so Philip explains to him the gospel and then the chariot comes to stop in an oasis and the amazing thing to me is these guys have been going through a dusty desert. It's 120 degrees in the shade. They come to an oasis. And the first thing that's out of the Ethiopian's mouth is not, give me a quenching drink. It's not, let me have a refreshing shower. It's not, let's do something so that these poor horses don't die of heat stroke, it's let me be baptized. And so they went down into the water and Philip baptized this Gentile turned Jew. It was also true for Gentile God-fearers like Cornelius. We mentioned him a few minutes ago that when God filled him with the Holy Spirit, Peter completed his Christian foundation, if you like, by ordering them to be baptized, Acts 10, 47. After that, they, the, the, the church, the advance of the church moves into Greece. And there in, in Philippi, there's a woman, a businesswoman from Asia called Lydia. She's attending a synagogue service. Paul is attending the same service. He preaches Jesus. And the scripture says, Acts 16, 14 and 15, it says, And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. She and her household were baptized. A few verses later, the Philippian jailer gets saved. He's a Gentile man. And that same hour of the night, it hadn't even become daylight yet. But Paul and Silas baptized the jailer and all his family. As Acts progress, progresses, they come to Corinth and then to Ephesus. And in both those places, the scripture tells us that people believed and were baptized. 
believed and were baptized. In fact, when they come to Ephesus, Paul says to the Ephesians, um, did you receive the Holy Spirit since you believed? And they said, we've never even heard there is a Holy Spirit. So then he said, into whose baptism were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Now, John's baptism looked forward to the coming of the Messiah when he would make a sacrifice to forgive sin. And so Paul said, this isn't Christian baptism because Christian baptism looks back on the time when you gave your life to Jesus and he forgave your sin. And so he says to them, I want to re-baptize you then, this time in the name of Jesus. Now, whether it's Jews, Samaritans, God-fearers or full Gentiles, whether they're in Jerusalem, Israel, whether they're in Asia, whether they're in Greece, Europe, the pattern is clear. You repent. You give your life to Jesus. You get saved. And as soon as humanly possible, after that, you get baptized. Now, let me pull out of what I've just said three observations. First of all, I want to focus on the method of baptism. It's always by immersion and it's never by sprinkling. The Greek word that's used for baptism is baptizo and that was used in the culture of the day in several secular contexts. For example, in, in the dyeing industry, if you had a garment that was white and you wanted it to be red, you baptizoed it in red dye. You plunged it right under the dye. You didn't get red dye and sprinkle it on it. You baptizo it. They were often at war back then and one of the ways in which they were at war was, was on the seas with, with galleys trying to punch holes in one another and when one had a hole in it, when it was breached and it sank to the bottom of the sea, it was said to have been baptizoed because it had gone right under the waters. And the other thing was in, in, in the culinary area when you were marinating pickles, and, and here we are in southern Manitoba, we all know what canning's like and pickling. Uh, you got those onions or cucumbers or whatever it was, and you baptizoed them in the pickling juice. You made sure that they went right under. That's the method of baptism. Notice also the candidate for baptism. It was always a consenting, believing adult. It was never a baby. Because as I said before, baptism never looked forward to salvation. It always looked back on salvation. So I think that we could discount infant baptism. I know that might be controversial in some 
circles, but in, in my opinion, I believe that's the teaching of Scripture. And then thirdly, the meaning of baptism. Now, why don't I just read you something that Chuck Swindoll included in his book, The Grace Awakening. And it explains the meaning of baptism in a great and graphic way. I remember, says Swindoll, sitting in Chafer Chapel, that's in Dallas Theological Seminary, as Dr. McGee was waxing eloquent about Romans 6. He told the true story of a lady who lived in the deep south and had a close relationship with her childhood sweetheart. She fell in love and ultimately married him. Their life together wasn't perfect, but it was rewarding. There was faithfulness and there were times of joy. They continued for years until he was suddenly taken from her side by a heart attack. Not being able to be, part, to be apart from him physically, she had him embalmed, put in a chair, sealed up in a glass case, and placed immediately inside the front door of the large plantation house. Every time she walked through the door, either going out or coming in, she'd say, Hi, John, how are you? Then she'd go on about a business, either off shopping or upstairs. Well, things rocked along as normally as possible, month after month. There he sat, day after day, as she acknowledged his presence with a smile and a friendly wave. A year or so later, she decided to take a lengthy trip to Europe. It was a delightful change of scenery. In fact, while in Europe, she met a fine American gentleman who was also vacationing there. He actually swept her off her feet. And after a whirlwind romance, they got married, and they honeymooned in Europe. Finally, they traveled back to the States and decided they'd live in her large plantation house. So driving up the winding road to her home, he decided, this is my moment. I'm going to lift my bride up. I'm going to take her over the threshold to the wonderful house where we are going to be together. And that's what he did. He swept her off his feet. He picked her up. He opened the door. He bumped it over with it, open with his hip. He walked right in and he nearly dropped her on the floor. Who is that? He said, oh, that's old John. He used to be my old man from way back. Whoa, 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 he said, he's history, he's dead. And immediately the new husband dug a large hole and buried her former old man, case and all. And in Romans 6, Paul tells us that's the meaning of baptism. It's when we come to Christ, our old man, our old nature, our old life is dead. And the best thing you can do with a dead body is bury it so that you can be raised to newness of life.
And water baptism actually acts out those three steps. You stand this side of the tank representing the dead old life that you once lived. You go down into the water and are cut off momentarily. Hopefully, your wig doesn't move this time. And that's a symbolic burial. And as they pull you up, that's a symbolic resurrection to newness of life. It's a burial of the old. I remember, in fact, it was many years ago at the my baptismal service, the preacher gave a, a, told a, a story uh, that, that he remembered from way back and there was a, an older guy getting baptized, the only candidate in the church to get baptized. He went through the baptism service and he's getting dried at the end and uh, they've, they've already pulled the plug and is draining the tank and at the bottom of the tank they find a pipe and a bag of tobacco. And so they said, how did this get here? He said, well, he said, you know what? That was part of my old life. And I wanted to so get free of smoking. When I was in the water, it was in my pocket, and I just let it drop into the water because I wanted to bury my old life. That's actually a great truth. Some years ago, I knew of another pastor that was officiating in a baptismal service. And this time, he was baptizing a biker. And this big, burly biker, he'd given his life to Jesus. But, and he was very ashamed of the fact that he had a tattoo on his bicep that said, Hell's Angel. And so, you know, he said, how can I get baptized? Oh, come on, of course you can get baptized. That's just a, on the surface. The truth is you're not hell's angel anymore. Yeah, he said, but I don't like it. Anyway, he submitted to baptism. He went down into the tank with the tattoo. But when he came up, it had disappeared. And God had actually worked a miracle to underscore the fact that his old life really was buried. He was no longer a hell's angel. He was a new creation in Christ. So my, my baptism is a command that we keep. It's an example that we follow. But you know, there's, there's more to baptism than just a symbolic burial. You can actually experience something in the water. Um, in in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, all of Israel were baptized into Moses in the Red Sea and in the cloud. And I think what Paul was meaning was this, that when Israel got to the Red Sea and they went over on dry land and then they assembled on the other shore and they watched as Pharaoh's army came after them and God ended up drowning them, that that army represented a very specific experience for all those, maybe a different personal experience. Maybe for one it was the, the lash of the taskmaster's whip. Maybe for another it was the back-breaking work of gathering straw. Maybe for another it was the work of tramping out the straw to make the bricks. 
Maybe for another it was the humiliation of building pagan temples with those bricks that, they, that, that, that Pharaoh enforced upon them. But all of that was buried in the Red Sea. Very particular. And I believe that baptism can be a time when very specifically God can cut us off from maybe those things in our previous life that need specific, specifically dealing with. Let me give you an example. It, it was the very first baptismal service that I officiated at in, in the Midlands of England in a town just outside Nottingham. And uh, the very first guy, I remember his name, he was Ian Trueblood. And we'd gone through a similar class like we are doing now. And, and I said to him, Ian, baptism, it, it, it can be very personal to you. And, and it can be a point where, you, where the Lord can specifically deal with elements of your past life. Is there anything in your past life that you'd like for God to bury? Now, there's nothing magic in the water. But baptism can be a point of contact for faith that God can do something in our lives. And so he said, actually, there is. He, he said, both my father and my grandfather before me, and it's come down to me, have a very debilitating bowel condition. We, we have an ulcerated bowel. He said, I, I can't work from any distance from a, a, a washroom. He said, as soon as I need the washroom, I have to just drop everything I'm doing and go. He said, it's embarrassing. He said, it's debilitating. It's painful. So he said, what I'd like to do is leave my colitis at the bottom of the tank. So I said, well, let's ask the Lord if, that's, if he'll do that for you. Well, he went down with colitis and he came up without it. God healed him. In fact... He, he went on several mission trips to East Africa. And you don't go to East Africa if, if you get tummy troubles. In the same, in, actually, in the same evening, there was another lady baptized. And, and she'd had surgery on her leg. And her, she came limping in. She didn't know if she'd be able to go through it with it. Mrs. Tingle, her name was. And she limped into the water, but she leapt out. And God healed her through her baptism. Baptism is a command that we keep. Baptism is an example that we follow. And then thirdly, baptism is a testimony we give. And this is a four-way testimony. And I'll briefly explain it. First of all, it's a testimony to the world. And when we are baptized, we are saying to the world, I'm finished with you. In New Testament times, baptism was done publicly. Not in a church building, but in the local river or the local pond. On the day of Pentecost, they used those huge ceremonial um, baths that were there in the temple and the meaning was clear it was a baptism of repentance you were saying I'm turning away that's what repent means from my association with 
the world. Repent and be baptized was the command. And you were saying to the world, I'm finished with you. But the secondly, it was a testimony to the church. And you were saying to the church, I'm joining you. Acts 2.41, those who received his word were baptized and there were added to the church that day about 3,000 souls. Thirdly, baptism is a testimony to God. Now you probably noted that when I was giving all those examples of baptism, I missed one out. That the best of all, Jesus. Now, Jesus' baptism was not the baptism of repentance because he was sinless. It was a baptism, in his words, to fulfill all righteousness. I think what that means is an act of dedication to God. And when we are baptized, we are saying to the Lord, Lord, I'm following you all the days of my life. And then the fourth area, it's a ba and this is a surprising one, it's a testimony to the devil. Because you're saying to him, you no longer have hold on my life. Romans 6 verse 3 says, do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? You know, when we, you know those old western movies when, when, People are being pursued. Uh, how is it that they shake off their pursuers? Well, they get into the river and they move a few hundred yards up the river and the water washes away the scent and it washes away their tracks. And I think baptism does that as far as the enemy is concerned. But once we are baptized... He loses track on us. In that, he loses his right of ownership over us. Let me finish with one final story. A number of years ago, there, there were some girls in a high school that were playing with a Ouija board. And if you play with those things, you pick up demons and they actually, you know, work. And they were asking the, 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 this Ouija board some questions, you know, when is our birthday, who are we going to marry, and this thing was, you know, spelling out names. And then they said, oh, our teacher here at school, what day will he die? I mean, it's a bit of a, a macabre thing to be asking. And this thing spelled out a date in the past. Now that really freaked them out. So anyway, they explained to their teacher what they'd been doing. They told him what the date was. And, he, and they said, is that of any significance to you? He said, that date was the day I gave my life to Christ and I was baptized. But as far as the devil was concerned, he was dead to him. So, baptism. A command that we keep and mix strength into a foundation. An example that we follow and act out. Death, burial, and resurrection. And believe God that specific things can be dealt with. And it's a testimony we give. To the world, I'm through with you. To the church, I'm in with you. 
To God, I'll serve you. And to the devil, you have no more hold over my life. That's why Peter says it's an appeal for a clear conscience. Because when the devil comes accusing us, we can point to the grave where our old life is buried and say that person no longer exists. And so I'd urge you, if you've never been baptized, or if, if that mode of baptism was different and the, the Lord speaks to you, come and talk to the leadership so that you can follow him in this very particular way. God bless you.